What is SCC? What does it mean to be part of Southport Church of Christ? So our vision here at Southport is about following Jesus, transforming lives. This is the mission Jesus calls us to, that we're not just a church of six pastors, but we're a church of over 600 ministers. So we're just starting off a series. We're talking about the goodness of God this year. Our overall vision, as Adam just shared with us, is about following Jesus, transforming lives. We are disciples who make disciples. God transforming us as well as using us to transform others. We're a part of what God has called us to do. And we follow him, we learn from him, we press into what he has to say and how he wants to grow us. Uh, We launched last week, as I said, the goodness of God, and we asked this question. Why is it important for me, or why is it important for you, for us, to understand the goodness of God? We understand that the culture that we live in is telling a very different story to that. The culture you and I engage in day to day is not saying God is good. Actually, it's saying the opposite. God is not good. Uh, God can't be trusted is what the culture tells us. Scripture, on the other hand, emphatically and regularly tells us about the goodness of God. It's inherent in his makeup. It's who God is, and he is that perfectly. That's what we talked about last week. As people, our assessment of what is good spins on an axis around me and now. Do I have a sense of, or feelings of joy and happiness and uh, blessing, etc. Those things must be good uh, if I have those feelings and it's happening to me now. But we suggested last week that moving away from those markers of me and now and shifting them to presence and commitment might be better ways for us to understand the goodness of God through the lens of presence and commitment. And we finished last week with an invitation out of Psalm 34, verse 8, that says, taste and see. God wants you to experience his goodness. There's an opportunity and a challenge that is set before us on that. Uh, God's goodness is more than a suggestion, right? Uh, It's it's more than just an opportunity to pick something off the shelf of God's nature, like you're in a a supermarket shopping centre, Um, Don't get that all mixed up, won't come out right. Actually, the goodness of God is about the essence of God, it's who he is. You and I are in relationship with God through his son, Jesus. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells within all who profess him as Lord and Saviour. And so the essence of God is within us and we want to know that and understand it. But God, as it were, is a gentleman. He won't impose himself upon you. Uh, He will wait for you to accept his invitation. He always has, and that's his intent today to help us understand 
his goodness. God has goodness for you. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder as we start today in your heart of hearts, as you reflect on your own journey, the blessings that have come your way, and if you've walked the planet for a while, maybe some of the challenges that have come your way, the disappointments and the hurts that have come out of the darkness and just sideswiped you as an individual. Do you believe that God is good and he has goodness for you? If you don't believe that or you don't want to ask that question, we're only two minutes into a message here, four, two on my notes, um, you are in danger of drifting off and just kind of thinking about lunch uh, or the beach or whatever you're going to do this afternoon because the topic you don't want to address. But God wants to speak in today into the very essence of who he is. There's a promise in scripture about who God is and he wants you to understand it despite your circumstance. And I don't want you to miss it. So let's pray as we open up. Father, we just come before you now. Understanding from last week, uh, just starting to get a glimpse, really, uh, that you are good, that you have goodness for us, that you want to show us this part of who you are. You are good 100% so. And so as we open your word this morning, and we process this through the filter of our own understanding, our own experience. Give us an understanding of the truth that you want to impart into our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus 32, the book of Exodus is where we're going to be. I'll let you look that up, second book of the Bible. In the Old Testament, God has made his covenant with Abraham and the Israelites, his partnership with them, the promises that he lays down. But his process of communication with uh, the Israelite people as a nation uh, is largely impersonal, certainly with the masses anyway. They display their devotion and their commitment to God through the keeping of the law, which is laid down in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the Ten Commandments that Moses received. Um, and their job is to maintain that law, live by this standard. God's saying, if you live this way, you will less, live the best life that is available to, me, to you and you will honour me in that process. But he knows that they're not perfect, as Don illustrated before, and so he's laid a pathway down for them to atone for their sins, making sacrifices to atone for their sins. But it was largely impersonal. God's uh, process, his vehicle of communicating with his people uh, was primarily through the prophets. If you've ever wondered what the difference between a prophet is and a priest, it's simply this. Um, the priest had the role of presenting the people before God. So if the cross up here represents God and who God is, the priest would come before the people and he would have, figuratively, figuratively would have his back to the people and he would speak on behalf of the people to God. He would bring their, 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 their dreams and their hopes before God and talk to them about how they 
feel and what their posture is. That would often uh, revolve around things like ample rains, bountiful harvest, having lots of kids and victory over their enemies. Bringing those kinds of things before God. The people were pretty passive in the most part. They would be at a distance and the priest would speak on their behalf. The priest is one who is uh, from the people. He comes out of the group of people. He's educated in the priestly role, set apart to represent people to God, but they stand at a distance. The role of the prophet is different to that. The role of the prophet is to represent God to the people. The posture is opposite. He would face the people having spoken to and engaged with God. They were set apart people, the prophets. They had a special relationship with God and they would communicate directly with God to inform the people of what God wanted to say, what he wanted them to do, what his heart was for them. The prophet would tell the people what God is seeking from them. The Lord appointed a number of highly spiritual men over the years to be prophets, the likes of Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to name a few. They were called to speak for God and act on God's behalf and communicate his message courageously to the nation. That was their job. But the greatest prophet of all that was selected by God from this group was a man named Moses. Here's what Deuteronomy says about Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and his whole land, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses was the greatest prophet that there was, who was born of earthly descent anyway. Later on in this series, we're going to explore how Jesus, the Son of God, performs both of these roles. The priestly role, coming before people, uh, coming before God on behalf of the people, and also speaks on behalf of God to the people. But for now, that background is going to frame up this Old Testament story about Moses and these verses from Exodus. So Exodus 32, we'll get to verse 32 in a minute, uh, which is where we're going to start. But just before that, Moses has come down from the mountain. He's received the Ten Commandments. Um, you shall have no other gods but me is commandment number one. God is the highest priority. The Israelites drift from this in their journey. They turn away and they manufacture idols, things to worship that were created by their own hands, made of God, and in particular this story, a golden calf. It's an image or a form of God, small g, that they can control and manage as people. They're not so much anti-God, the Israelites, but they're just drifting into a space where they want to control God and manage him themselves. They want to dictate the process. Verse 19 of Exodus 32 says this, And it came to pass, as soon as he, uh, he came nigh unto the camp, 
that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tablets uh, in your translation, if you've got a spell correcting device, it may say tables. But in the original, the word was tablet. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. Exodus 32 verse 19. Moses is so angry and disappointed here as the prophet. He's frustrated with the people that he's seeking to lead and bring God's word on behalf of. And so as he comes into their presence, he, the, the tablets of which the, the law is written on are broken before the people, symbolic of this disconnect of relationship. This is an important moment in time and Moses is just flat out angry. Moses' reaction is that uh, is the same as that of God's in verses 9 and 10 in the same passage. God described the people as a stiff-necked people and his anger waxed hot and he's had enough of their disobedience. Here's the part that I wanted to get to, Exodus 32, verse 32. This is Moses. This is Moses speaking to God about the people, the people that he's called to lead, the ones that God has made a promise to, a covenant relationship with, with um, from the beginning. But now, please forgive their sin. Moses speaking to God, please Forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Uh, the book refers to uh, the, the, the people that are saved, the people that are connected with God. And Moses says in this moment, Jesus-esque, right? Although Jesus hasn't been yet. Please, God, please forgive them of their sin. I know you can't put up with sin. I know sin is totally foreign to you. You've given people the opportunity in their own free will to love you so that it's meaningful, but it also means that they can reject you. And Moses says, please, God, forgive them of their sin. And if you can't do that, or if you don't, take me instead. Now, anyone who's a parent knows the heart that Moses is sharing here, right? Um, your kid gets sick or they, they, um, they, they have a, an accident on a push bike or something worse. Uh, and, and you say, I want to take that pain away from my child. When there's only one ice cream left, they don't get that. But when they have serious pain and affliction. You want to take that off them. I would stand in the gap, we say as parents. Here's Moses saying the same thing of the whole nation of Israel. Take me, please forgive them. Here's a question. Who gave Moses that kind of heart? Where did that come from? He's a prophet he has a special relationship with God to bring God's heart before the people to speak on behalf of God. 
But over time, it, it appears to have become more than a job for Moses, more than a task, more than a message to deliver or a sermon to give. He's totally invested to the point where he says, God, please forgive them. Take me instead. It seems that the, the kind of heart that God has for people has gotten under the skin of Moses and he's changed here. This whole story of the Old Testament and this one in particular, this one looking at Moses and how he represents God to the people is tele- telling us something. It's telegraphing something. The Old Testament is what we call a type or form. It's pointing towards something. And in this picture around the story of Moses and his desire for people to repent and walk with God and for God to forgive them is a type and form of Jesus who is still to come. This story at the start of Exodus 33, 32 and 33, is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. One that the the Israelites hold to dearly and quote numerous times over and over again as a sign of God's faithfulness to them in their story, but ultimately in your story and mine. Here's a list of passages here uh, from Numbers, Nehemiah, uh, 6 out of the Psalms, Isaiah. You can read that list there. All of these references reference this story here that we're looking at this morning. It's not a passage. This passage in Exodus 32 and 33 is not a one-off descriptor. This is allowing us to get right into the cockpit of God's business, find out what he's doing and what motivates him. Theologian Walter Walter, uh, Brueggemann says, this story is somewhat of a classic, and for Israelites, they would hold this as kind of a a creed, the the, the messages and the, the principles in this story. Exodus 33, verses 1 to 3 say this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants and I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. God will do what he said he would do. He said, I will give you the land, I will give you the promised land, I will bring you up out of Egypt, but their disobedience is so frustrating. His anger is waxed hot and he says, I'm going to play it differently now. I won't go with you, says God, but I will send an angel in my place. I can't go with you because I will probably smite you on the way. So I'll send an angel. Moses does two things in response to this encounter with God. He goes back to the mountain and he spends time on the mountaintop, probably quite a significant amount of time. He's praying and fasting and communing with God. And he returns, he actually went up there with stone tablets, which he was instructed to do by God. He comes back down with the law re-engraved. A gracious act of God to say, I will go with you. I'm still on your team. Reinstating a pathway of faithfulness for the people. 
But we still have this issue of the angel versus the presence of God. So Moses sets up outside the camp uh, something that's described in the NIV as the tabernacle. It's not the tabernacle that's set up in the temple later on, but uh, it's called the tent of meeting. It's a tent outside the camp. Moses sets this up and his intent here is to meet with God in this place, talk with God, understand what God wants to do with the people. The tent was well known to the people. In fact, this was a place that you would come uh, if you wanted to meet with God, wanted to understand something from God through the prophet Moses. You would meet with Moses in this tent all sorts of various things. So people were familiar with this concept of the tent of meeting. Exodus 33 verse 11 says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. This might come up on the screen or it might just be me, the back of my head. Boy, I should get some look into that. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one who speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. I love this, uh, this phrase, the, the Lord would speak to Moses. This is in the tent of meeting. The Lord would speak to Moses as one who is meeting face to face, one who speaks to a friend. All the people, all the men, all the leaders of homes specifically, would come out in this moment in time, in this story, they've come out of their own tent, their own camp, their own family space, and they would stand at the door of the front of their tent. And as Moses goes into the tent of meeting, they would watch from a distance. This cloud descends upon the tent of meeting as an indicator of the presence of God being with Moses and the conversation is happening. They know about the cloud. It's what led them out of Egypt, the cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night. We understand this picture of the cloud and it's present in this picture when we're meeting, when Moses is meeting with God. And all of the leaders of homes would stand at their tent and watch and listen. I wonder what's happening. I wonder what God's saying to Moses. I wonder how this is playing out. One who speaks with a friend is the phrase. A couple of things to clarify here. We already know that you can't see God face to face as a human and survive that. The glory, the majesty of God is so amazing that you will be incinerated. You can't be in his presence that way. So what is this phrase saying? Well, there's three uh, phrases here that are used in this passage. This is the first one. Moses met with God face to face. Uh, The second one is that God protected Moses in the cleft of a rock with his hand, covered him with his hand, Uh, this physical picture. Uh, And then thirdly, we see this picture that uh, towards the end of this passage, uh, that you're going to see God's going to, you're going to see God's back as he passes by, the, the, the back of God. These three things are what are known as idiomatic or anthropomorphism. And what that means is they are turns of phrase 
to help you and I understand better what's going on. Moses is meeting with God, but God is spirit. He's not there uh, having just, you know, parked his horse out the front and uh, I'm in a 20-minute spot so we can't be too long, Moses. Um, It's not that kind of picture, but what it's telling us is the way God speaks with Moses is the way you and I would talk, the way Tom and I chat in the hallway, right, on a Monday morning. How are you, mate? How was your weekend? Relaxed, connected. There's relationship, there's trust, there's respect. It's comfortable. It's understood. That's the way Moses has access to God. But remember before, the process for the rest of the people is is quite disengaged. It's about keeping the law and offering sacrifices. It's quite transactional. But here Moses has this amazing privilege of having this personal, deep and personal relationship with God. Again, we see that God uh, is saying, I'm going to cover you with God's hand. It's not a literal hand. Um, It's more of a sense of saying, hey, God is protecting Moses in this process. Uh, John Corson talks about in his commentary on this passage, uh, he didn't see literally a physical back of God, um, but you could translate this passage just as well as Moses seeing the afterglow of the presence of God. Whatever that was that went past is God, and I get to see the tail end of it. That's what this passage is talking about here. So the contact Moses is having with God is deeply spiritual and deeply personal. In this interaction, Moses asks three questions. Verses 12 to 14. Can I have your presence with me? Followed up in verses 15 and 16. Can we have your presence with us? There's some conjecture about the way this has been translated and it's more likely actually that the question is repeated in both cases on behalf of the people. But it's reworded here in the first one, maybe to give a different emphasis. But what Moses is saying is, I I don't want to go this journey. I don't want the people to go this journey without you, God. We need you with us. Don't send a messenger. Don't send an intern. We need you. Please, pleads Moses on behalf of the people. Then verse 18. Moses asks a third question. I think there's a please at the front of this. Um, It would have that intent, I'm sure. Please, can you show me your glory? See, we're getting such a great insight into the person of Moses, the relationship that is being telegraphed, and the goodness of God. Moses has seen the the glory of God stacks of times. He's seen the burning bush, he's seen the parting of the sea, he's seen his rod turned into a snake, he's seen all kinds of things of God's amazingness. But now that he's in this relationship with God, he wants this more than anything else. Please come with us. We need you with us. And can you show me your glory? 
I need to see more. He's just so desirous of being more connected with God. God knows what Moses can handle. He wants as much divine glory as he can handle, but God knows what he can handle and he's gracious here. He's amazingly gracious. Verses 19 to 23. And the Lord said, I will cause... Remember, he's asked for God's glory. Show me your glory. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, says God. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face uh, for no, uh, no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. What's happening here? What is going on in this passage? Why is it so important? Thousands of years ago, in a time of the impersonal and the law, disobedience and judgment, we see the true, true, true heart of God coming out. It's only visible to you and I because we have scripture and the history to tell the story. Kevin DeJong in his reflection on this passage highlights that this statement is so important. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. It's profound, he says. You will see my goodness, is God's response to the question. My true identity. The fact that I am who I am, the creator of all things. The self-existent one. Then God announces two great character attributes that he has as a part of his goodness. The ESV says it like this. I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and I, will be sh- and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This is how it fits together. God is beyond constraint. He's applied these processes of the law and of sacrifice, but he's not constrained by that. He can show grace to whomever he wants to show grace and mercy to whomever he will show mercy. There are no limits. God is 100% good to you and to the Israelites. The inability of the Israelites to keep the law, to make the sacrifices right, all these have already been solved here in Exodus 33 in the person of Jesus. God knew the direction he was going. Moses, though, because of who he is, the favour that he's found in God's eyes, and the story that he wants to tell you and I as we read back, is that he gets an insight into the depth of relationship that is offered going forward. Let me finish with this statement. God speaks with Moses one-on-one like a man would speak with his friend. It's close intimate and personal, committed and present. 
and Moses is afforded this amazing interaction with God thousands of years ago that you and I have access to now on a daily basis. God's response when Moses requests, show me your glory, he entertains this request even though it has lots of complexity to it, lots of barriers. God sets him in another location, puts him in the cleft of a rock for his own protection and then shows him the afterglow of God's goodness. Psalm 18 says this, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus takes on this title of rock. He is the rock. He is the pathway to salvation. He is the one who delivers and intercedes. And it's his spirit that is personally present with you. We'll come to this passage later on in our series, but when God passed by Moses in this passage, Moses sees the afterglow, the goodness of God as much as he's able to cope with. That's all he can handle. Jesus takes this picture and gives us a fuller picture in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 50, where he sends the disciples on ahead and they face a storm. They battle and they're battling away because the wind's against them and Jesus is walking on the water, appearing to walk by. You might have heard that passage preached and your mind would think Jesus is walking by on the water as if, you know, he doesn't care. I'll stop and help them out if they see me, if they identify me, or maybe if I've got time. They're not the interpretations that the Israelites would have understood or the disciples. They would have had this picture in mind the back of God, the afterglow. Jesus is looking as if he's walking on by would have brought them straight back to Exodus 33 and 34. God is showing Moses his goodness, his essence, and empowering this deeper relationship that Moses is pursuing. You and I have access through the same Holy Spirit to this kind of depth and understanding and experience of God's goodness. So where we landed last week was with a challenge, an opportunity to pursue something for yourself, to step into this, not be passive as the Israelites had to be, but to step into this. Psalm 34. Uh, Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge In him, says Psalm 34. God, since the beginning of time, is giving you an opportunity to engage his goodness. As the world in which we live in is thrusting it away, banished to the naughty corner as we talked about last week, but God's saying, I want you to press in, taste and see. 
Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be in church this morning, to open your word and have the richness of your story, your love for us, the goodness that is in essence who you are, just giving us a a little bit more of a glimpse of what that looks like and what it means. Father, I pray that uh, today, as we depart this place, that the uh, invitation in Psalm 34 is one that we'll take seriously, to pursue, to taste and see, to find ourselves protected in you, the rock, your son, Jesus. And that's what will bring blessing in our environment, as we know you in a more deeper or more personal way. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.